Lord, we do love you that your goodness has followed each of us and chased each of us for all of our lives. Thank you, God, for your great love, for your mercy, for your just for your goodness towards each of us. I pray, Father, as we were supposed to return to Judges tonight and instead are going to hang out in the book of Jude, that you would bless our time. Speak to us through this beautiful little book near the end of the Bible. Help us, Lord, just to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Jude starts off with Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So that's kind of interesting now, isn't it? Because that would mean that Jude, um, being the brother of James, would have been the half-brother of Jesus. And you can read about that in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, where they're all named. Um, Jude, some people, some people, think that Jude may have been Thaddeus or Ladius, who was listed among the apostles in Matthew 10 and Luke 6. But since he identifies himself as the brother of James, it seems odd to me that he would have been Thaddeus or Labius because none of Jesus' brothers were among the 12 apostles. So uh, those who say that that might be the case, uh, I don't know where their argument would come from. He clearly states himself to be the brother of James. Uh, we had James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, and then we had James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James and was a pillar in the early church. So it makes sense that Jude was his brother. Uh, the fact that his half-brother, or not his half-brother, um, but that, you know what, that makes him the half-brother of Jesus too. But the fact that his brother James was the leader in the early church, or was a big-time leader in the early church, um, it makes sense that he would have taken up a leadership position that would have put him in a place to write, book that we now have in the Bible. He calls himself, well, he says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So the word called means to be invited or appointed. If you don't know this already, you are all called, invited, or appointed by God to something very specific. Ephesians 2.10 talks about that that we are God's poem, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Uh, a lot of people get a crazy idea that, oh, a pastor is called, or a missionary is called. No, 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 no. A teacher is called. An artist is called. Uh, people who work in the medical field, people who are police officers. It doesn't matter. We're all called by God to be salt and light wherever they are at. Uh, sanctified to those who are called and sanctified. Remember the word sanctified means to set apart, to make us holy, to purify us or to consecrate us. Uh, if you remember Jesus talking in his high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, he said that we are not of this world. We are to be set apart from this world. And he prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth and that his word is truth. So not only are we called, not only are we sanctified by God the Father, of course, we are preserved. 
in Jesus Christ. Some of us preserved a little better than others. But the word preserved means to guard from loss or injury. Now, some people might say, well, if we're preserved, you know, I've, I've suffered loss. I've been injured. If I'm preserved in Jesus Christ, why have I suffered loss or been injured? Well, the fact is that we are preserved for eternity. I read, I'm, I'm reading an amazing book by Dallas Willard called Renovation of the Heart. And he talks about our eternal life. And that eternal life, he says, is in quality while we're here on earth and then in quantity throughout eternity. And I thought that was one of the coolest ways I've ever heard that put. Our eternal life in Christ, because we possess eternal life now. We're, we will live forever. Yeah, this body will wear out, but we will live forever. So we possess eternal life now, but now it leads to quality of life in Christ, and then will lead to quantity of life throughout eternity. I thought that was just so cool. So when we talk about being preserved, we're preserved, of course, for eternity. Eternity. Uh, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What a beautiful way to greet people. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I think if you walked into Walmart and said hi to somebody, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, they'd look at you kind of funny. Probably even look at you kind of funny if you did it in church. Verse 3. Now in verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So his first inkling when he was going to write this letter, because we're not really given the audience to whom Jude wrote, uh, it was probably a church, but we don't know. His first idea, yeah, you know what? I'm going to write to everybody about our common, our common salvation. What a great thing to write about. Let's talk about how we're all saved in Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this eternal life. Let's talk about forgiveness of sins, right? He goes, this is, this is what I wanted to talk about. He said, but I found it necessary. And the word for necessary actually means that he was distressed. Now, whether this was a Holy Spirit distress, that the Holy Spirit was like, no, 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 this, I don't want you to write about that. This is going in the Bible eventually, so I got something else we need to cover. Or whether it was distressed because he had heard about something going on to his, with his intended audience, he was distressed, so he decided he was going to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, the word contend and the word earnestly actually mean the same thing. They both mean struggle, which is very fascinating to me. So we translate it, uh, well, people smarter than me translated it. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. But what he's actually saying is I'm writing you to struggle, struggle for the faith. Which is another way of saying to fight for it, to stand up for what's right, contend, right? We, in, in, in boxing terms, 
we call one of the, well, both of the guys who enter the ring, or girls, right? Don't want to be sexist. Some of those female MMA fighters are tough chicks. <laughs> I would not want to mess with them. Um, you know, but when you enter the ring, you're the contender. You're a contender. Why are you a contender? Because here you're there to fight. And that's what we're being told to do. And what are we fighting for? Well, our faith. The faith that was once delivered to all the saints. And that faith, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to find out why this was necessary. Because some men have crept in, right? They crept in unnoticed, which means they lodged themselves within the church stealthily. They snuck in. They are marked for condemnation. They are ordained for judgment. They're ungodly men, which means they're irreverent or impious or wicked. They've turned the grace of God into lewdness. And we see this all today. We see people, well, here, let me finish. And then they deny the Father and God the Son. In 1 John 2, 23, we're told whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. If you're denying one, you're denying all. If you're denying the Father, you're denying the Trinity. If you deny Jesus, if you deny the Holy Spirit, you're denying the Trinity. Uh, and so this, keep in mind, was nearly 2,000 years ago. And we see this happen today. We see people try to sneak into the church. And maybe they don't try to sneak into our church, but they try to sneak into the church. Uh, because I always have past, uh, breakfast with my pastor friends on Wednesday, you always get illustration on Wednesday nights that had to do with that breakfast. I'm going to give you an example of this. So uh, one of the pastors I had breakfast with in the morning was telling me about a new fangled doctrine, right? And if it's new, it's a lie. That's just the way it goes. If somebody comes to you and says, I have a new doctrine. It's, no, you don't. <laughs> it's been the same doctrine for 2,000 years. It hasn't changed. Uh, but they call it theonomy. I don't know if you've ever heard of theonomy. Uh, I hadn't heard of it until about a month ago. And the reason uh, my, my pastor friend brought it up is because there was a gentleman in his home church in Texas that was trying to split the church. He succeeded. He got a number of people to follow him out of the church, convincing them that this theonomy is correct. Now, theonomy, simply put, and you can Google it if you want more information, but I don't recommend it because it's all lies. But the idea behind theonomy is that we as Christians are meant to take over civil rule of our government and any other government in the world. Right? That's not in here. Right? I'm reading, I'm reading 1 Peter on my own where we're told to submit to the governing authorities. We've talked about this extensively when we are in Romans chapter 13 where we're told to submit to governing authorities. And I am not saying that followers of Christ should not seek public office if that's what they feel called to do. But the idea that Christians should overtake civil government, overtake the courts, and then institute once... The Christians take over the government. They are then to institute Old Testament law. If something's new, it's a lie. 
right? So this came up. And this person got into this church in Texas. This person got, like, I can't remember what it was, like 20-some people to follow him and got them to leave the church so that they could start another church that's bent on doing this. That is just one false doctrine. How many other false doctrines are there? You know, he talks about turning the grace of God into lewdness. How many churches out there are preaching, say, that homosexuality isn't a sin when the Bible clearly says it is? How many churches out there are saying, uh, you know, that abortion is okay? There are churches that are saying abortion is okay. There is nothing in the word of God that would ever support the murdering of an innocent child. In fact, there's a number of places in the word of God that tell you not to do that very specifically. But that's what turning the grace of God into lewdness or license is. They think because of the grace of God, they can do whatever they want and they'll be forgiven. You know, I fear for those people. Not just because they are probably not saved, but because they will stand before God for all the people they led astray. And that is very frightening. And so this is why Jude under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decided to exhort his audience to contend earnestly for the faith. Something we should do as well. Verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper name, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. The battery just died. Woe to them. Just grab me the handheld and plug it in and turn it on. Woe to them according to the book of Jude. Sorry, we'll be right back. For the people listening to this recording in a little bit, the battery on my wireless died. I should have known. I should have changed it before I started. Shouldn't I? There. And there we go. <laughs> well, we don't want anybody on Facebook to miss that. So, Woe to them, woe to them, and woe to them some more. So let's kind of go through this. So we have the unbelieving Jews who left Egypt. We studied this in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. We touched on it in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, that they were unable to enter the rest of God because of unbelief. And what did God do to those who didn't believe? Well, he killed them in the wilderness. 
Then we have, verse 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He is reserved in everlasting chains and utter darkness. And, of course, he's talking about those angels who rebelled along with Satan. Um, they are now what we call demons, of course, but they left what they were created for because they were created to worship and serve God, and they left that. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12, 4 are all places that speak to the fact that the angels were supposed to do something. They had a job to do. They rebelled against God, and now they are going to suffer eternally for it. Then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, one of the things I love about Sodom and Gomorrah, or about the book of Jude, not Sodom and Gomorrah, sorry. One of the things I love about the book of Jude is that Jude calls out the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for sexual immorality, and particularly for going after strange flesh. That is a nice way of saying uh, that they were homosexual in, in their sexual immorality. Because there are those who take that account in the book of Genesis, chapters 18 and 19, and say that God did not overthrow or destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of sexual immorality. That he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah because the people wanted to treat the angels poorly or mistreat the angels. Well, how did they want to mistreat them? They wanted to mistreat them because of sexual, with sexual immorality. And here Jude kind of puts that argument to rest. Um, clearly, the judgment was for their sexual immorality and very specifically for sexual immorality that involved homosexual behavior. Um, verse 8, he talks about these dreamers. And, you know, well, that, that kind of bugs me. I'm a bit of a dreamer. Um, but he's talking about these dreamers in such a way that they are in a state of unreality, thinking that they can defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries, and there won't be any consequences for it. That's why he calls them dreamers, right? They, they think they can do this, and they'll get away with it. I mean, look at our world today, folks. People think they can do whatever they want, and they're going to get away with it with no consequences whatsoever. That is not going to happen, right? They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. We talked about this greatly in the book of Jude. We shouldn't be speaking evil of anyone. We may disagree with somebody. We may not like what they're doing or how they do it, but speaking evil of them is not our place. And they go on and say he, they speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts. And these things, they corrupt themselves. For they've gone the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, I'm just going to make a quick comment about verse 9. Michael the archangel, at some point, right, Moses died before Israel entered the promised land. And the Bible tells us that God took care of the body. We don't know where he was buried or what happened to his body. Probably because if they had created a grave for him, it would have become an object of worship for the Israelites. At some point in time, whether it was right after he died or, or we don't know when because that's not recorded for us, God sent Michael to collect his body. And for some reason, the devil wanted it too. Now, my best guess is the devil wanted it so he could turn it into a shrine, and God sent Michael to get it 
so that there wouldn't be such a thing. But you gotta think about Michael. Michael, we know, is a warrior. We see that in several places in scripture. We know that one angel can wipe out a human army of 173,000 soldiers in one night. That's recorded for us in Kings or Chronicles. Read all four books, you'll find it. So we know angels are powerful beings. When he fought Satan, he didn't rebuke him in his own authority. He rebuked him in the authority of God. The Lord rebuked you. So I highly recommend that if you ever have need to rebuke an evil demonic spirit, that you invoke the name of the Lord to do so. Say, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So the way of Cain, what, what was Cain's way? Murder because of jealousy in Genesis chapter 4. What about the, the running greedily in the error of Balaam? What was Balaam's thing? Well, sin for profit. God wouldn't let him curse the Israelites, so he told Balak, the king, how to get the Israelites to stumble. This is in Numbers 22 through 24, and then in chapter 31, he's killed for what he had done. And oh, how many people today are making profit out of believers? Unsuspecting believers who don't know any better. And then Korah, what was Korah's issue? Well, he rebelled. He rebelled against Moses. And in Numbers chapter 16, God caused the ground to open up and swallow him and his entire family and everybody who rebelled with him. Oh my goodness, don't do that. What's the point? He goes on in verse 12. These are the spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Wow. Spots in your love feast. Remember, the early church would often celebrate communion, and they would call it an agape feast. And they would celebrate communion in homes, and usually with like a potluck-style meal, or the host would provide a meal. And they called it a love feast. Well, when you have people who are bringing in false doctrine, well, they're going to become a spot or a blemish or a stain on your love feast. He says, while they feast with you without fear, they have no fear of God, no fear of the consequences of your actions. They're clouds without water, which means they're empty and easily swayed. They're trees without fruit, which means they're worthless. Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, talks about a tree without fruit being worthless. They're twice dead. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 14, the lake of fire is called the second death. So being twice dead means not only do you die physically, you will then experience the second death and be cast into the lake of fire. This is what Jude is saying. These people are going to spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. They're raging waves, but they make, make means they make big deal of themselves, but they are going to end up in shame. You ever met a person who made a really big deal out of themselves? 
I'm ashamed to say I've done that. Not recently. Praise God. He, he's helped me learn. And I'm not going to say everybody that I'm humble and I don't struggle with pride because that's just stupidity. I'm not going to say that. I sometimes struggle with pride. I sometimes struggle to be humble. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but my wife remembers. Right? 25 years, she remembers a lot. Man, I was an arrogant jerk when I was younger. And very, thanks, my mom's nodding along too. Thanks. <laughs> wow, I feel the support spots in my love feast. Anyways, um, but that's what these guys are. They're making a big deal out of themselves. What's going to happen? Well, maybe they make a big deal out of themselves. Maybe they make a lot of money. Maybe people know their name. But one day they're going to stand before God. And it's going to be nothing but shame. They're wandering stars, which means they're erratic. Right? Because we know stars don't really wander. Even though they follow some sort of orbital path, they don't really wander. They're, they pretty much stay where God put them. Because if they didn't, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. Which So this simply means they're erratic. And it's they're reserved for blackness and darkness. Jesus called the second death, the lake of fire, a place of outer darkness. He did that in Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13, and 25, 30. Anybody ever been down to like the Carlsbad Caverns or the Grand Canyon Caverns or something like that? My mom will remember this because we were, we were together. I think you held on to me because I was a kid, eight or nine maybe. We went down into the Grand Canyon Caverns. Some year, I, I can't remember what it was, but half a mile, mile below ground. Take a big elevator down, and they have all these lights set up. And then at one point in time, the guide said, everybody grab the rail. And then he turned the lights off. And it was a blackness that you could not see your hand in front of your face. Absolute utter lack of all light. Now imagine that for eternity while you're burning in the lake of fire where it says the fire is never quenched where the worm never dies. Now what do worms do to people who are dead? They eat them. So you're burning alive or burning dead but you're conscious and conscious of it for eternity while you're being eaten by worms and you can't see anything. It says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How much you want to bet you'll be able to hear other people weeping and gnashing their teeth? Now, I wouldn't want to deal with that for a minute. Eternity is much longer. This is why we believe in Jesus Christ now. This is why we trust in his death and resurrection to save us. People love to say, well, how could a loving God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. God has done everything possible so that none of us have to go there. People who choose to reject that, choose to reject the free gift of his salvation, they choose to go to hell. God does not send them. Verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
I think at this point, Jude said, I wonder how many times I can use ungodly in one sentence. So we have Enoch's prophecy against the ungodly. This is quoted from the apocryphal book of Enoch. Um, and so we do not accept the book of Enoch as, a, as part of the canon of scripture. Uh, the early church fathers rejected the book of Enoch as well as the other books in the Apocrypha. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that Enoch's book should have been rejected, but since the early church fathers felt it didn't belong, I'm good with that. If you ever want to read it, take it with a grain of salt, just like the books of First and Second Maccabees. Great history, but take it with a grain of salt. Um, but Enoch basically prophesied that the Lord is going to send judgment. He's going to come with ten thousands. Notice the thousands, right? Not, not, not the specific number of ten thousand, but tens of thousands. However many of us there are when he returns. And what's he going to do? He's going to execute judgment. He's going to bring conviction against the ungodly for their ungodly deeds, that they committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he's going to judge every word that's been spoken against him. I am so happy that I am a follower of God. That he chose to save me and gave me the opportunity to respond to him so that I could be saved. I don't want to be among the ungodly who are judged. Verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. So they're grumblers. They, they murmur. They complain. They're discontent. They walk according to their own lusts. In other words, whatever they want to do, whatever they think will satisfy uh, their fleshly desires, they do it. They speak great swelling words. This is an, these are insolent words. Uh, the word actually means an aggressive lack of respect. Right, Because sometimes you can be disrespectful in kind of a passive way, but no, these people are going out of their way to be disrespectful. They're flattering to gain an advantage. You ever meet that person? Oh, that, that just that boggles my mind. I, I would so much rather a person just tell me they hate me. It's just easier. <laughs> I know where you stand. Don't tell me you love me and I'm wonderful and this, that, and the other thing when you don't mean it. Um, and he says, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who's he talking about? Anybody know? Paul. Paul. So here, Paul is referred to as an apostle because the following quote, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts, Paul talked about that in, um, I believe it was 2 Timothy chapter 4. How do you like that? I just turned right there. Yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 4 in the first five verses. 
And so Jude must have somehow had access to the book of 2 Timothy when he wrote this. How else would he have quoted Paul? Now, I guess it's possible that Paul just may have said it to him, or perhaps he heard Paul preach a message like that. Um, that's possible, but what I think is more likely is that Jude probably had access to the book of 2 Timothy. Um, we, we have been warned multiple times in Scripture that there would be false teachers. Uh, I'm going to spew off a few verses here. Um, if you miss any, you can ask me afterwards, and, and I can tell you what they were. But not only 2 Timothy chapter 4, but 2 Peter 3, uh, Titus 1, 10 through 11, and then 2, 1, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and most importantly, Jesus warned us of false teachers in Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 through 28. We've been warned, right? That's just um, seven examples. There are many more times throughout Scripture that we're warned that false teachers would come. That's why it's so important for us the, the message we gave, I, well, I, we, the message I gave on Sunday from uh, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's why I am so passionate about us being passionate about the word of God. Because there are false teachers. And the only way for us to know that is to know what's true. And for us to know what's true, we have to be in the word. And so these mockers who walk according to their own ungodly lust, they're sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit, right? So they're sensual persons. They lived simply for physical pleasure. That's what that word means. They cause divisions. The example I gave earlier of the person who caused a church to, to divide down in Texas, right? Our church, long before I was here, experienced a division. If somebody's in the church trying to cause division, according to Jude, they don't have the Spirit of God. And, and I, I, don't, I don't want to sound judgmental. I'm just looking at verse 19 <laughs> with y'all. Central persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. Titus 3.10 talks about rejecting the divisive person in church. Proverbs 6.19 reminds us that God loves it when we dwell in unity. And so if they don't have the Spirit of God, John 7, 39, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, among many other places, places like Galatians chapter 3, the, uh, John 14, 15, and 16, Ephesians chapter 1, um, there's a lot of places where we're reminded, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, actually, that we have the Spirit of God as the guarantee of our salvation. So if someone doesn't have the Spirit of God, they're not saved. And a person who lives for their own fleshly desires and a person who causes division, according to Jude, right? I'm, I'm not trying to cast judgment. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That person is not saved. Now, does that person, will God give them an opportunity to repent and be forgiven? Well, of course. But if they refuse, once again... I would not want to be them on Judgment Day. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, 
praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So I love this. Build yourself up on your most holy faith. How do we build ourselves up in our faith? Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Matthew 6, says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. How do we build ourselves up in our faith? We seek his kingdom and we seek it through his word. Pretty simple. Praying in the Holy Spirit. I love this. Ephesians 6.18 tells us that prayer is one of our spiritual weapons, just like the word of God. Um, Romans 8.26-27 tells us that when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit will intercede for us. And in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, we are given instructions about the use of the gift of tongues. All of these things can be considered praying in the Holy Spirit. Maybe praying in the Holy Spirit is praying as the Spirit leads and guides you. Praying in the Holy Spirit may be, I have no idea what to pray. Holy Spirit, please take over, because I don't know what to say. And he will. Or maybe God has given you the gift of tongues. And now remember, the gift of tongues is not about proclaiming messages or prophecies. It's about the prayer language. It can be used, it's used one time in scripture in Acts chapter 2 to proclaim the wonderful works of God in languages previously unknown. But the other gift of tongues is a prayer language that we're given to proclaim thanksgiving and joy and, and things that we can't express on our own through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of these are praying in the Holy Spirit, or praying, yeah, praying in the Holy Spirit. Building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in your holy spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, we build ourselves up on our most holy faith and we pray in the Holy Spirit. I, I, your homework, go read John chapter 15. Well, we're not going to read it tonight, but your homework. All of John chapter 15, or most of John chapter 15, is about abiding in Christ. Dwelling in Christ. Living our lives, every moment of our lives, in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 uses the phrase in Christ. I, I can't remember what it is, um, but it's, it's a really large number for a small section of scripture because that's where we're to be. We are to be in Christ every day, all day, in every season. Read John chapter 15. As we abide in him, he makes us fruitful. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Titus 2.13 tells us looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.12 says looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Right? We are to be looking for our eternal life, not only in quality now, that's what abiding in Christ gives us, but in quantity to come at his return. I love that. He says, on some have compassion, right? Have pity on some. Because you're going to meet people who are caught in the, the, 
the thrall of sin and they want out and they don't know how to get out and they don't know what to do and they don't know where to go. Right? When Jesus encountered those people, he was compassionate. So should we be. He said, others, you make a distinction. Right? Because then we're talking about, we spent the whole time talking about false prophets or false teachers. Right? We don't have to have compassion on them. That's the way I read it. Maybe you see it a little bit differently, um, but on some have compassion, making a distinction. Others save with fire, pulling them out of the fire, or save with fear, sorry, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Right? Uh, when I was a volunteer firefighter, we were given a very simple saying, life before limb. Life before limb. Now, I, I'm, I'm thankful that I never had to make a decision like that. I, I never did. Um, but life before limb, we, we were taught this when we were taught how to use the jaws of life to chop a person out of a car. person's in a car. The car's on fire. You chop their leg off if it's what's stuck, right? Because they can live without the leg. You don't want to leave them in there to burn to death. What Jude is saying, pull them from the fire with fear. Life before limb. Right? Because there's going to be people who it's not about compassion and pity. It's about, for lack of a better word, smacking them around a little bit. Don't do that physically. But, right, you've got to deal with what's going on. You have to confront that sin or to confront that false teaching. Because if God puts that person in your path and you don't, then what happens? Well, then they're lost to the fire. And so sometimes we have to respond with people to kindness. I actually have this in my notes, so I'm going to read it. Some people literally need the hell scared out of them. They need it. Verse 24. One of my favorite benedictions in all of Scripture, because most of the books have benedictions, and there's benedictions throughout the Old Testament too. This is one of my favorite ones. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. The reason I love it is because we are not able to keep ourselves from stumbling. We are not able to present ourselves faultless before the glory of God. But Jesus is. Jesus is able. He has the power to keep us from falling. He has the power through his death and resurrection to present us faultless before God. He's the only one who has that power. So he says to God our Savior, he alone is wise, right? The human wisdom is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. Be the glory and majesty, dominion and power. Another way to say that is all the honor, all the greatness, all the might, and all the strength. All of that is his. Both now, right? Right here, right now, in our lives, in our church, in our jobs, in our homes, right here, right now, but also forever wonderful word, amen, which, in case you don't know what it means, means so be it. 
right? I, I agree with this. I agree with the fact that there are false teachers and we need to beware. I agree with the fact that I need to be compassionate on some and others I need to scare the hell out of them. I agree with the fact that only Jesus can keep me from stumbling. Only Jesus can take me home to my heavenly father. And I agree that all the glory, majesty, dominion, and power, all the honor, greatness, might, and strength should be his now and forever. I agree with all of it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful little book, a book that I fear is too often ignored because the message of Jude is so relevant to us today because, Lord, there are false teachers. There are those who are trying to drag other people with them to hell. And the only thing that's going to stop it is your power in us as we preach the truth of your word. So I pray you would give us that strength. I pray you would give us the opportunity. And I pray that in all of it, that you, you would be glorified now and forever. In Jesus' name.